Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. The government's consumer price index for January food prices is out, and the verdict for food shoppers? Yeah, so overall, this, this CPI inflation report was not as positive for food as, as we've seen in recent months when there were price declines. Agriculture Department economist Megan Schweitzer says last month prices for some food products did go down, but the overall price index for all food at the grocery store went up. The January is a time when we typically see some seasonal price increases, though the increase this month did come in a bit above expectations. Food prices went up seven-tenths of one percent, but even so, grocery store food prices are only a little over one percent higher than they were January a year ago, and shoppers are actually spending less than a year ago for products like eggs, dairy products, fresh vegetables, and pork. Gary Crawford, Washington. You're listening to Agriculture Today. I lived and worked overseas for nine years as an expat before coming back to the farm. Josh Miller is a producer from Anderson, Indiana, past chair of the U.S. Grains Council. So I was very in tune to the international side of geopolitical uh, politics and also with um, the food that travels worldwide. So coming back to the farm and then find out about the Grains Council is just a natural progression for me. What does he tell farmers back home about the U.S. Grains Council and its importance? And one of the points I always like to make, 95% of the world's population lives outside of the borders of the continental United States. So with 95% of the population living in other countries, they have a growing population, a growing middle class. They're not necessarily going to eat more food, but they're going to eat better food, better quality proteins, higher quality food. And that's what the where we grow in the U.S. We're the, some of the best farmers in the world, and we have the ability to um, feed their proteins, their beef, their chicken, their pork or we have the ability to grow the plant-based proteins and ship it over to them. So it's a great opportunity for us being uh, type, you know, great producers in the United States and a great opportunity for them to purchase our product. If we talk trade, we always talk China, but is there another country that needs to be in the conversation? Yeah, Tony, you'd find that, you'd find that country in India. India is one of the uh, largest populated countries in the world today. They have a growing middle class. And as we've discovered before, with a growing middle class, they want more protein consumption and better quality food. So we have um, an office in India now. I'm very proud during my chairmanship year, we opened up an office in New Delhi. And we've already started to add staff to that location because we've just, uh, the sky's the limit with India. And we're very excited for our trade partnerships not only for the next five to ten years, but the next 50 years as well. Which means opening an office in India. So I'd say the biggest challenge for us was the legal side. I think we worked on getting that office open for about four years. So it was a heavy lift for staff. It was a heavy lift for the board of directors. So we finally got it done. We had a ribbon-cutting ceremony in January 2023. Very happy and very proud for that. Staff-wise, I really have to brag, we have 108 staff worldwide, and we just have a great opportunity to pick from the pool. Uh, Reese Kennedy uh, currently runs that office for us, and I knew knew Reese when he worked in D.C. I knew Reese when he was assistant director in Tunis, and there's nobody better to run that office than Reese Kennedy, and I am so happy we have him in that office. As he leaves Guatemala City and heads back to Indiana, 
Is he excited about the year to come? I'm excited just to get up and go out and do this every day. Um, my, I have some friends that are still in corporate America talk about what are you going to do when you're retired. I am retired. I, my life can't get any better than what it is right now. I love farming every day. I look at all these as opportunities. But one of the biggest challenges we're going to have to fet, set going forth is uh, low, lower commodity prices. Uh, corn prices, we've had a couple good years starting to trend down. Uh, soybean prices as well as wheat prices are trending down as well. So making sure we're staying financially solvent in the operation while making sure we're maintaining uh, our technological edge that we have on, um, is, is a, it will be a challenge, but also a great opportunity because uh, iron sharpens iron. I, I tell my guys and gals, diamonds are made under pressure, so this is, this is, the, this is a great opportunity for us. This is Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. So overall, when we're thinking about watch items for 2024, the very first thing I'm going to be watching out for is that March Prospective Plantings Report. Troy Appelhans is with Cattle Facts. Do we see an increase in soybean acres and a decrease in corn acres? And what are those decreases on, on corn? If we see corn acres decrease three, four, or five million acres, we need to be thinking about the corn market and increasing our risk management on that. If we see corn acres decrease about two million acres, we would expect to see a lot more of a stable, less volatile market. On the soybean side, exports. If we transition into that La Nina here, what's the Brazilian crop look like? Do we start to see exports from China pick up or sales to China pick up? Because that can have an impact on the corn market. And then those total principal crop acres. The margins that the farmers had the last couple years are going to be a lot tighter this year. And so if we see a drop in that total principal crop acres, what's that going to come out of? Is it going to come out of more corn? Are we going to see less of an increase in soybeans? So overall... The grain market on the, on the uh, input user side is in a relatively comfortable position. We are still expecting these grain markets to have a rally into the spring, and that rally could take corn back up there towards that 550-ish area. But ultimately, by the time we get into harvest, we would expect to see corn prices back there closer to $4. Kevin Good is with Cattle Facts. We've got tighter supplies, higher prices. That's why we didn't export as much product last year, and that would be our forecast again this year. On the other side of the coin, we're harvesting less cows, 90 trim stout. Australia will continue to bring more product in as we think about trim as we go through not only this year, but probably over the next couple of years. And you can see the correlation there that I've got circled compared to where we're at in this cycle compared to where we were in the previous cycle. Very strong correlation there as far as that balance of trade. From an export standpoint, last year was disappointing. When it's all said and done and we get the December numbers out, the raw data is going to be down about 15% just looking at, at beef. Where were the drops? Primarily into the Asian communities. You can see the three countries that we depend on. All of them were below a year ago. And you can also see that South Korea is surpassing Japan from a, from a long-term standpoint as their number one export partner. Obviously, China last year was disappointing. The good news, though, is through the second half of last year, even though we were down year over year through the second half of last year, it looked like we'd plateaued. It looked like we'd hit the bottom. 
So even though we're forecasting exports to be down 5% this year, obviously the second half last year gave us a little bit of hope that, hey, maybe that could be a little bit better. And obviously, from a long-term perspective, that's where we would expect to see the growth as we go forward would be into those Asian countries. You roll those together and it gets you to per capita supplies on beef, and the message is pretty simple, that we do have tighter supplies not only this year, but as we go over the next couple of years, I think we get the message there. And here at home, competition meets will be competitive. Now, don't get me wrong here. You can still see that we're featured a lot, the lion's share. The retailer still sees value in beef featuring, particularly for beef holidays. Holidays at the end of the year, also the grilling holidays as you go through the spring and summer. That's not going to change. But it's that every other week ad, instead of getting a, a chuck roast or a round, you're going to get a chicken breast, you're going to get pork chop. And that's what we've seen as we've gone over the last few months. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. Regulations and requirements that cities can impose on ag operations within the city limits. Ag law specialist Tiffany Lashman from Texas A&M AgriLife on interesting laws. This is a huge deal down like by the Metroplex, Austin, San Antonio, Houston. What the law basically says is if you have an ag operation within the city limit, the city is very limited on what rules, regulations, zoning, anything they can impose on that operation. There are ways they can do it, but they have to show it's like a substantial threat of imminent danger to people of, there's like a list of things, flooding, drowning, uh, infestation, disease. That was changed this year in the statute to, to give producers in those areas more not more power, but just the, the cities can't impose those regulations. Um, and then in So that's the statute, okay? And again, in the law, legislature passed in the agriculture code. Then in November, Texas voters voted on a constitutional amendment that basically says that the right to farm, ranch, uh, wildlife management, timber, I think, is now a constitutional right. The language is very broad. I don't know exactly what that means or how it's going to be applied. I think we're going to have to wait and see. But it's in the Constitution. And why does that matter, that distinction between a statutory right and a constitutional right? It's much harder to change the Constitution. So let's say next year, if the legislature comes in and somebody says, you know what, I don't like that right to farm. Let's just do away with it. They get enough votes, the legislature could do away with the statute. The legislature on its own can't do away with the constitutional amendment. People have to vote on that. So that's the distinction there. Like I say, it's very broadly worded. Um, that amendment, and I don't know exactly how it'll be applied. It'll be interesting. I'll just share some of the questions we're getting. A lot of them involve like small operations near cities. I got a call yesterday from somebody in the city who has three pot-bellied pigs, and the city wants to know if that's an ag operation. I just showed him, look, here's the definition in the statute. Here's your facts. You can decide. That's not like a Backyard chickens are another big one, right? Can I keep chickens in my backyard? Can I build a greenhouse? In town, is that an ag operation? So there's going to be some questions like that that are going to have to shake out um, with the statute and the new amendment. Last year, I stood on this very uh, floor and I said there was a lawsuit against the Texas drone privacy statute. Remember, I told you there was a drone privacy statute, but then a judge in West Texas struck it down and said it was unconstitutional. I'm back now to tell you that the Fifth Circuit disagreed and it's constitutional again. You see how my life is just ever shifting, like, who knows what I'm going to have to say, okay? So um, they have said that that law is constitutional. I anticipate that that case may be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
We'll see if they take it or not. Um, but for now, that law is constitutional and back on the book. Essentially, what that law says is you can't use a drone over someone's private property if your intent is to conduct surveillance on your neighbor. It doesn't I don't know what conduct surveillance necessarily means, okay? But that's what the law says. Okay, now that's not your most important question about the drones. I'm going to tell you the answer to your question. What is the question y'all want to know about the drones? Can I shoot them? Every time. If someone caught my, my secretary sets up all my phone calls. And if it says drone, I already know the question every time y'all call. The answer is no. Do not shoot the drone down. Let me tell you why. Did y'all know that drones are federally regulated aircraft? They're regulated by the FAA. Same as like the Southwest Airlines flight that goes over. Turns out there's pretty stiff penalties for shooting down a federally regulated aircraft. Okay? Don't shoot the drones. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. To start with, just the creation of our international marketing conference. Carrie Sefworth, Vice President, U.S. Grains Council, says after 30 years, there's been success. You know, the board of directors, we went through some changes, and we wanted to create what we call our advisory teams. Um, and so we set those up, and we put together an international marketing conference. So our, our producer members, our agribusiness members that want to be put on these advisory teams sign up in our, and so we have this international marketing conference for them to have hear what's, what we're doing, hear what we're proposing, ha- have them be able to give input and buy into what we're planning to do. And for this, ca- this case, what we're planning to do already here in 24, but even looking out to 25 and, and two, 2026. And so that was a big change when we first, you know, this is our 21st one. I was at the first one in the Dominican Republic in 2003. And so that's been a big change. Just if you want to look at feed grain marketing, well, the, probably the, you know, when I started, you know, 30 years ago, we weren't marketing distillers grains. Uh, we weren't, you know, ethanol, even the U.S. was pretty, uh, very young. Uh, didn't even think we'd be talking about a renewable fuel source um, and trying to market that around the world. So those are big changes. Um, when I first started, we still, we actually had an office in Moscow and we, you know, the, Rus- the Soviet Union had collapsed and we were, you know, big, big importers of corn uh, and thinking we're going to try and, and uh, see if we can recreate that even after the Soviet Union collapse. And now Russia is, uh, they're not, I mean, they're the world's largest wheat exporter um, and, so, and barley, a little bit of corn. And so that's a big change. You know, China, uh, and we opened up our office in 1982, but even when I first started, we were doing a lot of technology transfer. Now China, it's our largest sorghum market, um, <clears throat> second largest corn market. Uh, <clears throat> so it's that, the growth we've seen like in Southeast Asia, Mexico, our largest corn market was a kind of a blimp on the map. Um, uh, back in when I started in 1993, we were shipping some corn there, but um, it was predominantly Mexican. Mexico still grows a lot of corn, but it, so that the feed and livestock industry and, and the corn st- sweetener and starch industry has really blossomed to our, our neighbors down south. What's happened here in Central America in the last 10 years? Um, <clears throat> we still have our key mature markets that we had when I first started, like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. Um, they're still around. Um, we have a lot of market uh, challenges in our South America, you know, Brazil, 
was almost a, a corn importer from their neighbor, neighbors in Argentina. And our, our biggest comp competition was Argentine corn and actually Chinese corn going to South Korea and Southeast Asia. Um, China hasn't exported corn since 2007. But, you know, Argentina and Brazil are very strong uh, competitors in the global market. So a lot of changes over, over that 30-year period. Talks about partnerships. Most of the, the corn checkoff um, states uh, are members of ours, and even some of the, then the associations are as well. Um, the United Sorghum Checkoff Program, which is a, a national checkoff for sorghum. Um, the barley checkoffs in, in North Dakota and Idaho and, and Montana and even Washington are members. So we, that, that allows you know, the three grains that we cover to be able to have delegates be part of the Grain Council. We have agribusiness members, we have general farm organizations, so even some of the farm bureaus, some of the State Department of Agriculture. And so through all that, you can become a, a delegate of the Grain Council, and as a delegate, you can apply to be on our advisory teams, uh, and then take part in whether you're on the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> value-added advisory team, the ethanol advisory team, the Asia advisory team, um, innovation and sustainability, there's, um, there's several others. Um, but even if you're not an advisory team meeting, you can come to this. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. We believe as we look at 2024 that we are going to have more of a seasonal type of a year. Mike Murphy speaking at the Cattle Facts Annual Ag Outlook Seminar at CattleCon 24. We're going to find this spring rally moving in here to the mid to upper 80s. Some of the weather influence has a possibility of getting us a little bit higher. We'll pull that back into a summer low. I think today we would define that summer low being somewhere out there a little bit later, July into August, and then we'll have a recovery going back into the end of the year. The weather challenges we've had the last 30 days have slowed up some of the marketing rate, but they've also slowed up some of the placement rate as well. And so I think that's why we have a market situation as we look into having a late summer low, we'll find a few more cattle to be placed on feed as we get into this you know, February, March time frame that would have typically been placed on feed here in the month of, of January. But overall, more of a seasonal type of a market. <clears throat> the big question is you start to look at these charts, you have a seasonal and non-expansion, and, and will we have a new high into the fall of the year? One of the key things that I would say about this year that we haven't really experienced for quite some time is the spread between the cost of gain to feed cattle and the value of the fed cow themselves. And that spread really says add days on feed, add extra weight. Now that's difficult to do today, especially if you're in a region like Kansas where you've had so much weather impact and the cattle have definitely been hurt. And in many instances we're seeing, seeing people just want to market those cattle and get them gone. But as we transition into the spring and summer, I think you're going to start to find an environment that says, we're going to feed these cattle longer, and we're going to make them bigger, and we're going to have more tonnage out there into that fall time frame. And it's going to be certain items like the 50s trim as an example that could find some pressure, and that could be a little bit of a headwind in terms of the valuation of the cutout when it's all said and done with. Now, where we are cyclically, we're in a spot where when we look at the fed cattle market, we are going to feel a little bit front-end loaded because of this relationship between fed cattle and cost of gains. However, we're still in a spot where we're going to continue to be placing less cattle on feed on average over the course of the year of 2024, and that's even going to extend into 2025. So 
Not that we want to carry cattle as a cattle feeding industry. That's not what we're advocating for. But if we do do some of that, I don't think it's going to have as much of a negative impact as maybe we've seen in other cycles just because of where we are with our declining supply here in front of us. Not only with a you know, 750,000 head decline in fed slaughter this year, but also looking into another decline into 2025. Comes as USDA predicts lower cash income. Carrie Litkowski with the Economic Research Service. For uh, animal and animal product cash receipts, we expect all categories or groupings of the commodities to see lower receipts in 2024. Uh, Cattle and calf receipts, after increasing steadily year after year, they're forecast to decline in 2024. Uh, That's about a $3 billion decline. Eggs are expected to see the largest percentage decline at almost 13, 14 percent in 2024 due to expectations uh, for lower prices received for eggs. Receipts for the other categories here, dairy, broilers, and hogs are all forecast to fall as well in inflation-adjusted dollars, but again, pretty close to what they were, what we're forecasting them at for 2023. It's agriculture today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. I landed at noon yesterday, and uh, by just after 2 p.m. yesterday, was in a bilateral with the uh, Ministry of Energy and Mines here in Guatemala. Doug McCallop is Chief Ag Negotiator with the U.S. Trade Representative, addressing members attending the annual meeting of the U.S. Grains Council in Guatemala City. That uh, represented the first meeting that uh, any member of the administration from Washington had had with the new government here in Guatemala. Um, Our meeting was entirely focused on biofuels, so I think it's uh, very fitting and appropriate that uh, our first uh, deep discussion, at least from uh, the White House with this administration, was on uh, biofuel policy. The upshot, at least from that meeting, was that any uh, discussion of process or steps or things that uh, the uh, government might be interested in in having on hand are all things that um, either the U.S. Grains Council, our departments back in the executive branch of the U.S. government, um, have all of the information relating to technical issues, issues relating to pricing, issues related to food versus fuel, all things that we have worked on in the past are all things that I think we're well equipped to help uh, the government going forward. So we certainly will appreciate the, the ongoing engagement here. Uh, this will be a top priority for USTR at uh, remaining uh, on top of the progress on getting to E10 uh, here in the Guatemalan market. Um, following that uh, bilateral, I went over to the Department of Agriculture, met with the Minister of Agriculture yesterday afternoon. And uh, I want to share with you all one of the very first uh, things that we talked about was the success of CAFTA and the fact that both the U.S. and Guatemala have benefited tremendously from the Central American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Trade in Guatemala uh, in terms of agricultural products going to the U.S. has increased threefold over since CAFTA was first signed, and their volume is up to around $2.9 billion of agricultural product that goes to the U.S. under CAFTA. Uh, the U.S. has experienced uh, very similar uh, benefits from that agreement. And it's just very important, especially in this region right now, as uh, we engage with various 
uh, partners in Central uh, Latin America and South America, that we uh, continue to uh, discuss the mutual benefits that these trade agreements have and our ongoing commitment to, um, uh, to uh, honor and to uh, continue to, to reinforce uh, those commitments that we have between our countries. We also talked about biotechnology a fair amount, um, which I thought was a very, very good discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we expressed uh, some concern over uh, some lack of recent approvals and, and some timelines that the government has been on. Uh, the minister uh, committed to uh, setting up a, a dialogue uh, to have a, a discussion uh, very soon with Post and, and with uh, uh, affected uh, members of the, of the government uh, to uh, talk about the biotech approval process and getting progress uh, on that, which was a very good discussion. This afternoon, I'll be going over to the uh, Economia uh, Ministry to, to meet there and discuss trade. Again, I anticipate we'll talk about the importance of uh, CAFTA and what it's done uh, both for Guatemala and for the United States, um, and to talk about per perhaps capacity-building ideas that the U.S. could help to further uh, invest in. There's been a lot uh, so far through USAID, through a variety of uh, agencies, and uh, certainly as Guatemala uh, seeks to help improve its um, Productivity on the agriculture side for, frankly, a lot of commodities that the U.S. Uh, doesn't, doesn't grow. Uh, those are certainly areas that are ripe for discussion, and we want to, to further those. And so we're looking forward to that, uh, that bilateral this afternoon. It's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. Two particular data points within the recently released USDA 2022 Census of Agriculture raised the concern of the Agriculture Secretary. It was at the Census Release event Tuesday at USDA headquarters when Secretary Tom Vilsack pointed out, Survey after survey continues to show a decline in the number of farms and in the farmland. In terms of specific numbers, In 2017, when we did the survey, there were 2,042,220 farms. Today, the survey reports we have 1,900,487 farms. That's 142,000 fewer farms in five years. And regarding total farmland, Land. In 2017, we had almost well, a little over 900 million acres of land and farming. Five years later, we have 880 million acres. So we've lost 20 million acres. I'm Rod Bain reporting in Washington, D.C.